Luke chapter 23, the first verse. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with one another. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. Indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, strange words, words which which by rights should never have been uttered by human lips. No one should ever have stood as judge over the Lord Jesus Christ. No accusation should ever have been leveled against him. And these things are terrible in their own. But Lord, in the midst of this, there was truth being spoken. Declaration that was, in fact, correct. That there was no fault in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the significance of this, to understand the necessity and the usefulness of, of these trials. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and that we would be blessed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the penultimate chapter in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And the kangaroo court of the religious leaders had come to its predetermined conclusion. They, they weren't examining Christ to find out something about him. They had already determined they were going to have him killed. And that's what they determined to do. They had found him guilty of blasphemy. But there was only one little problem with this. And that was that the religious court, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, didn't have the authority to put anyone to death. Under the Roman occupation, capital crime, capital punishment was reserved only for the Roman government. And 
they forbade that the Jews should be able to do that themselves. So because mere imprisonment or beating was not good enough for these Jewish leaders, and their desire was to kill Christ immediately and completely, they hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now Pilate, of course, there was another problem here because Pilate had the ability to put Christ or anyone else to death, but he could care less about these religious issues like alleged blasphemy. So they couldn't just say that we disagree with him in terms of our theology. They had to refer charges of a very different nature, instigating insurrection. Now that was something that he and every other Roman governor did take seriously, and it was in fact the usual reason why men were crucified. Now, the fact that they would accuse Christ in this way was, incidentally, the height of hypocrisy. The whole thing was incredibly hypocritical. They had found Christ guilty of the very thing which they themselves were so supremely guilty of, blasphemy, as they denounced and dishonored the Son of God. And now the very thing that they were accusing Christ of was insurrection, something they themselves didn't really consider to be much of a crime. Actually, mainly there was considered to be laudable zeal for the nation among them. And in any case, to one extent or another, I, I know there are different parties involved, both the Sadducees that were more uh, in the pocket of the Roman government and also the Pharisees. But to one extent or another, they were all guilty of. And their desire, their expressed, their publicly and privately expressed desire that this Roman government would be removed. Indeed, it was a crime which they would very certainly be guilty of in the years to come. They wouldn't just be accused of inciting insurrection. They, of course, were going to do it, and they would be punished for it in AD 70. But Christ was innocent of this, entirely innocent of it. And contrary to the Jewish leader's wishes, Pilate knew that. And rather than being convicted of this or any other crime, both Pilate and Herod end up making, in effect, Herod, but in word, Pilate, public declaration that they found no fault with Christ. No fault. Now that's only strict accuracy. That's only justice. They found no fault. Why? Because there was no fault. He was not guilty of this. It was entirely beyond that, the fact that he was not guilty of any insurrection against the, the government. He was guilty of no sin whatsoever. And that brings us to why this information is in Scripture. That brings us to its usefulness to us. Because we know from Exodus 12.5 that your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. If it had a blemish... Anywhere, the lamb was no good. It wasn't going to save you. It wasn't going to be a sacrifice for you. And you know, friends, for that reason, anybody who wanted to live, anybody who wanted this to work, was going to give that, that lamb a good inspection. Because you wouldn't entrust yourself to the lamb to be your, your sacrifice if you weren't positive that it was indeed a lamb without blemish. And friends, had there been no opposition, had there been no concerted effort here, we would not have the evidence of the inspection that we do in this case. 
Very much like the situation with the resurrection itself in which there was a concerted effort first to prevent as if that was possible and then to cover up the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that concerted effort, we have far more evidence of its truthfulness. These are not a bunch of gullible people who were wanting to listen to anything they possibly could. There were those who were positively trying to make sure that it wouldn't happen. And now we have a group of people very competent and able people who are doing everything in their power to get Christ convicted of something, and they can't do it. And instead, the Roman governor, who has no particular reason to be kind or even just to Jesus, and in the end is wanting to do them a favor, says, I find him guilty of nothing. He is innocent. He is without fault. I find no fault in him. And that's useful for us. Well, the title this morning is Christ Found Not Guilty. And the three points are, apologies to the children, these are a little bit longer. Christ before Pilate, you say. Christ before Herod, silence. Pilate before the world, not guilty. Christ before Pilate, you say. Christ before Herod, silence. Pilate before the world, not guilty. So first, Christ before Pilate, you say. In verse 1, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. Why? Again, because they could not put him to death. And also the whole multitude, notice that. It's not a, a word without meaning. Every last one of these words has great meaning for us. The whole multitude, from this point on, we see increasing in that people are uniting in their opposition to the Son of God. And so it was the whole multitude. At first, it's just a few mumblings and and a few who are talking about maybe we should put Christ to death. But over time, it's more and more and more as they unite in this terrible work. Well, in verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now again, so this is early in the morning, as soon as they possibly can. They go from the kangaroo court at the, the place of the high priest, and they take him to wherever Pilate's uh, palace was, the praetorium, and they make these accusations against the Lord. And that is what these wicked men, by the way, are calling Christ teaching, perverting the nation. Perverting the nation is what they call what Christ did as he went about doing good and teaching the truth of God to these poor, benighted people. The very words of their creator, the very words of the judge of the living and dead, the one who is the word of God incarnate, the Holy One of Israel, they called perverting the nation. We're going to speak of this a little bit more in the, in the application section. But friends, it is no new thing for people to call evil good and good evil. Christ was perverting the nation. What sort of state would it, must it have been if his words of truth were considered perverting the nation? Well, they were in darkness, weren't they? People who were in darkness have seen a great light. And from the perspective of darkness, the light is objectionable. And the specific charge that they give is forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. They speak in general he's perverting the nation and specifically he's forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now that's pretty bad. That's pretty ironic. That's pretty blatant. It tells you just how uh, impossible it was to find dirt on the Lord Jesus Christ 
Because they had come to him with a specific purpose of getting evidence for this moment. And you remember how it went in Luke 20. Luke 20, 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Pretty plain. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He's saying, here's a denarius, the thing by which you're going to pay tax. Whose image is it? Caesar's. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The answer couldn't have been any plainer. And yet now they are claiming, they are lying through their wicked teeth, that he was forbidding people to pay taxes when he had specifically told them to pay taxes. Unbelievable. But this is the way it is when you're dealing with someone who's not guilty of anything at all. You know, unfortunately for us, being sinners, there is often some little element somewhere of misbehavior, of unwise speech that goes with, with everything. And that is why even when we are rebuked un, unrighteously, that we should always look for some element of truth that will do us good to repent from. Jesus Christ was utterly perfect. And the only thing they could come up with was a blatant lie 100 degrees away, or 180 degrees away from what Christ had actually said. Now, the other charge was that he claimed to be Christ a king, which was, of course, true. Pilate asked him in verse 3, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you say. And so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Now, if you just read the Gospel of Luke, you may have a little bit of difficulty in putting those two things together. He says, are you the king of the Jews? He says, you said it. And he says, I find no fault in him. Well, we get a little bit more of the picture, I think, in John 18.36, a parallel passage here. John 18.36, and Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? So that's pretty much, we're now synced up uh, at this point. Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. And now here's some further information. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, and there you have it. You see, Christ was making very clear, both by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If so, my servants would fight, but that's not happening. And then later on when he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, he's making very, very plain that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. I don't have, I'm not fighting any wars. I'm not going to be fighting against you because it's not that kind of kingdom. Who are my subjects? Those who are of the truth. Those who hear the truth and obey it are the ones who are my subjects. But this kingdom is not mutually exclusive with the state. It is entirely distinct in that way. It's not in conflict. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't some interactions Obviously there are, but what he's saying is at its fundamental level, the nature of his kingdom is a spiritual one, and therefore it is not a threat even to this wicked Roman government of occupation. 
Well, Christ says, you say. Before Herod, he doesn't say anything at all. That's our second point. Before Christ, before Herod, he gives no answer. Now that did not, you know, just the fact that that Pilate had relayed these things, it was not sufficient for the Jewish leaders because in verse 5, they were the more fierce. Notice how that when wicked men are frustrated in their evil design, they get all the more angry. They are the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, meaning he said, Oh, Galilee, that's where he began. So is he a Galilean? He asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, again, you have to think about it. Imagine if England were divided in half, and the south, the major city, uh, London, and the rest of the south were governed by one Roman governor, in this case Pilate, and the north governed by someone else, in this case Herod, who was, had some ties to being uh, Jewish, uh, not fully so. Um, and therefore there are two different jurisdictions. And in this case, Pilate is only too glad to get rid of the problem here because uh, he doesn't find anything guilty, and even a wicked man like Pilate wasn't keen to, to have him executed when he wasn't guilty of anything, and you can see clearly that it was jealousy. So he sends him on to Herod, who happened to be in the city. Why? Because this was the great high holy day coming up of the Passover and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, in verse 8, for he had desired a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. But there was going to be no miracle in this case. This was his whole desire. Great, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've heard about him. I've, I've heard about all the miracles. I want to see one. And so he bids him, commands him to do a miracle, no doubt. And Matthew Henry observes, the poorest beggar that ever asked for a miracle for the relief of his necessity was never denied. But this proud prince that asked a, merely, a miracle merely for the gratifying of his curiosity is denied. Now, he might have seen Christ and his wondrous works many a time in Galilee and would not. And therefore, it is justly said, now he would see them, he wants to see them, and shall not. They are hidden from his eyes because he did not know the day of his visitation. So true. If he really wanted to see Christ, he could have done what Zacchaeus did and humble himself and go see Christ as he was doing these things. But he was too great and too proud for that. Now he bids Christ to perform a miracle to satisfy his curiosity, and Christ refuses these things. Well, beyond asking for a miracle in verse 9, he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. There would be no miracle, there would be no answer. All this in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So we have in his time before Herod, who, yes, had jurisdiction over his own, his own hometown, his own home country. He was as silent as a sheep for his shearers. But yet in verse 10, the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. 
And you have to understand what amazing humility it was of Christ not to answer these things. We are so quick and so desirous of answering the least little charge. Even if half of it's true, we want to immediately defend ourselves against the element of tr- that may not be true. You know, even the circumstances. You got the circumstances wrong. That's not exactly the case. It just rises up in us. Christ, who is the Son of God, who is their King, truly, has the humility to hold his tongue. And how can we learn from that, I think? We're reminded in James, aren't we, of the necessity and the, the supreme need of us governing our tongues and the near impossibility of doing it. Can we not learn from Christ who was questioned and accused of so many things and he was able to be silent when it was right for him to be silent and to have the wisdom to know when it is right to be silent and when to speak? Well, he was silent before this man who ultimately was not going to decide the matter but rather he was brought back to Pilate. And our third point is to say that Pilate, before the world, made the declaration not guilty. Verse 13, Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. Well, friends, that is a remarkable pronouncement. If we only read the Gospels, we think Pilate must have been the most just, the most uh, forbearing and patient and kind sort of ruler that ever has been. That is not the case. Uh, actual history uh, of, of, of other situations um, points out that he could be a very ruthless man, and was, was willing, more than willing to put people to death, whether they deserved it or not. But rather what we see remarkably is that you put Christ before such a man, and even he, examining on the charges of which they have brought, can find no fault in him. It's an official pronouncement of innocence. You know, it's one thing. Let's imagine I'm going to sell you a lamb. I've got Bill's lamb shop. And I'm going to, you need a lamb. And uh, in fact, everything depends upon it being a a, a faultless lamb. And you come to me and you say, is this lamb okay? And I say, it's great. I just gave it a once over and it's it's good to go. Are you going to trust your life to that lamb? Probably not. You might want to say, If you were buying a car, you might want to say, I want to have my mechanic take a look at it. And what if you then said, I want to take it to the other guy who's selling cars, the one who would prefer to sell me a car, who has every reason to find fault with his vehicle. I'm going to take it there and see what they say. Now, if that man, if the mechanic at the other dealer, who would like nothing better than say this is a piece of junk, and, and to sell you something that they have, look it over in, their pre- in your presence and can find nothing. What does that say? Well, friends, that's what we have when, when he gathers everyone. This is, an, this is an official pronouncement. He says, I've come to my conclusion. Get everyone in here before me. You have brought this man to me, making these kind of accusations, hoping that I would condemn him to death. 
I have subjected him to examination in your presence and he is not guilty of these things. I want you to know that. And I declare it. This is my findings. This is my pronouncement. He is not guilty. He goes on in verse 15. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. He said, you, you sent him to another. I sent him to another garage for a second opinion. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. For also speaks Herod in this. Though he had treated Christ contemptuously, he and his, his army, he had not been able to find him guilty of any crime. And so both of them lend their evidence. However unwillingly, however unrighteously in their hearts, they render evidence to the people there before them so that the act that they were about to do, they would know, was the height of wickedness and sin. And that for everyone, for all of time, for you and I, that we would know that this lamb is faultless. Again, let me just say the situation of which is all too common. Some of you know exactly what I mean. When there are accusations made against a Christian which are plainly because on, on theological grounds that there is some mixture of sin there. And unfortunately, in unsympathetic eyes, unsympathetic judges can focus on those issues, side issues, rather than the thing at hand. But Christ, in those kind of circumstances, they couldn't find a single thing on him. And in fact, that's why I read to you Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, as his political enemies put him up on these charges. There was nothing else. As they look around, they could find nothing to accuse him. There was no mismanagement. There was no laziness. There was no fault. There was no mistake of any kind. Imagine that. Imagine if you were on trial from people who hated you, rivals who were trying to find something, and they had to examine your professional life. Unfortunately, friends, I don't know if there's really anyone among us. We have some good people here, but I know I, I would not stand in such an inspection. You would find fault with me. But you couldn't find fault with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel was a picture of him, you know. Daniel was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't find anything wrong with him at all, except the fact that he would not bow the knee, or that he would bow the knee to the Lord in prayer and would not listen to a false declaration. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, you can send them to whoever you want, and no one's going to find any fault. If there are two in the whole world that would have been glad to have found fault on that day, it would have been Pilate and Herod, but they couldn't do it. And this is going to be continued in the next sermon. But again, if there were any competent authority able to investigate and determine matters of justice in the land, they had been consulted and they had found Christ not guilty. And this is a declaration to the whole world. Well, what's the application of these things, of this declaration that Christ is not guilty? Not, not just, it's not, it's not John saying that. It's not Peter saying that. It's Pilate saying that on behalf of Herod. What do I say? I say that you should cling to this particular lamb. 
Because it's not like you, you can do some comparison shopping at this point and find, oh, what do you know? A, a spotless lamb, that's great. Well, I'll just go see if I can find another one and maybe there's a better deal on the other spotless lamb. Friends, there is no other. This is the only one. This is what's so remarkable about this, this whole thing. And if you are to, and, and here's, here's the kind of dichotomy. On the one hand, I want you, you should absolutely inspect when you are offered the opportunity to take a look and see what this Lamb of God is. And he has been inspected before the whole world and the, world, and the declaration has come to you. You should take a look at that and receive it. But on the other hand, you have to know that there's no further recourse It is, in the end, a take-it-or-leave-it situation because there's no other lamb who's like that. I'm constantly amazed with the the so-called saviors that people are willing to adopt. I really, really am. I I sometimes encounter pretty intelligent, wise, successful people who have thrown themselves into some weird and wonderful religion or cult. And you say, what are you doing? You read their stuff and it's just, it's, it's crazy. And the, the lives of the, the founders of these religions are scandalous, scandalous. And yet they turn a blind eye to these things. Friends, from the, the tree and the fruit are intimately connected. The, the fruit is miserable, but that's because it, because it comes from a miserable tree who cannot even save himself. There's no other lamb that is spotless. And, and yet, these people are following these false teachers to their own destruction, even though if they simply open their eyes, let alone send them for a second opinion to the enemy camp to go find out if there's any fault in them, if there's any dirt on them. If they'd even open their eyes to the most obvious things, they'd say, wow, this leader is dreadful, guilty of all sorts of sin. I don't want to follow them. But they do. So I say, you know, his worst, Christ's worst enemies could not find any charge to stick. Christ dares them to do it. He did that back in John eight forty six. Which of you convicts me of sin? Wow. Not which of you convicts me of capital sin, as we're speaking of here. But which of you convicts us of any sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you're not of God. Well, friends, I don't know if you're of God or not. That's God's determination and his sovereignty. But if you are of God, you will hear the words of truth. You'll put your faith in this Savior because there is none other. Secondly, my second and very obvious secondary application to these things is that you should respect the lawful authorities. You should respect the lawful authorities. How sad it is in recent days in Western Christian-influenced democracies not only to disagree and to vote against someone they, they, they don't like, but to call into question their very legitimacy as if in a functioning democracy that, that there are, can be such a thing as, as one who has no legitimate authority and you can say that's not my leader friends very few Roman emperors came to the throne in a completely straightforward way the unanimous agreement of all the people and that every aspect of their ascension was utterly straightforward and above board 
many of them in various ways were, were guilty not only of, of minor discrepancies but had killed their predecessor or otherwise had plotted uh, the downfall and, and all the rest of it. And it's in that situation that we are told that we should submit to the governing authorities because they were put in place by God. Matthew Henry says this, We have found him perverting the nation, quoting from the verse, as if converting them to God's government were perverting them from the civil government, whereas nothing tends more to make men good subjects than making them Christ's faithful followers. Christ had particularly taught that they ought, not, they ought to give tribute to Caesar, though he knew that there were those who would be offended at that for him. Yet here he is falsely accused of forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Innocency is no fence against calumny. And what that means is he was innocent. That didn't save him from having this false charge. But the point I particularly want to make is that nothing tends more to make men good subjects than making them Christ faithful followers. Okay? We should be absolutely the best subjects, the best citizens. And all the more apparent if we're not keen on a particular ruler at a particular time. Thirdly, let me say that false accusations are not new. Um, we should be expecting them. It is no new thing. This is Matthew Henry again. For good men and good ministers that are real and useful friends to the civil government to be falsely accused as factious and seditious and enemies to the government. Okay, no new thing. Christ couldn't have been any better friend to the government of his time in that he told them, you should pay taxes to Caesar. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. In all the opportunities that he had, and he had many opportunities to rise up a rebellion, he could have probably pulled that off at some point. He had no interest in doing that at all and rather was reinforcing the legitimacy of the government which the people there very much doubted. And so it is with every Christian nation that we have the most stable and the most just governments and Christians are the very best subject yet, yet. False accusations are nothing new. And from that day until now, the most common sort of accusation, the reason why Christians so often go, have gone to their death, and even to this day, are because of accusations or implications or insinuations that their existence is contrary to the interest of the government. And so they need to be killed. They need to be persecuted. These kind of false accusations are not new. You know, it's a terrible irony. If the state really wanted, all they really wanted to do was seek the good of its own people and the legitimacy and stability of the government, it would not merely just tolerate Christians, but it would actively promote the Orthodox Christian faith. And in better days, that's exactly what they did for just such reasons. Sad irony. But let's not be too surprised when Christians are falsely accused. Fourthly and finally, why don't we pray that we would stir up the people by teaching? Jesus was accused of stirring up all the people from his incessant teaching. Well, there's a charge I wish that could be leveled against us. Boy, don't I. 
Because, you know, the other possibility is not that, you know, that we're, we're going to be accused of something before the government. The other possibility is that we're utterly ignored because we have no effect whatsoever. We're not doing what the church is called to do, and therefore the world and Satan will just leave us alone. I pray that won't be true. I pray that we would stir up the people by teaching, doing what Christ has called us to do. There might be trouble because of it. I think there will be spiritual warfare. I think there is spiritual warfare because of it. But if we're going to have troubles in this world one way or another, how I pray that such charges could be made against this church, that we stir up the people by teaching. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we understand that sometimes it is difficult to see the fullness, the totality of the importance of some parts of your word. But Lord, we know that there is a reason why these things take up so many verses. That Lord, we might, that Christ might have been subjected to the greatest scrutiny possible and been found not guilty, no fault to be found in him. Heavenly Father, how we pray that we would consider Christ in all of his perfection and beauty, that we would consider that it was not merely that they didn't want to find a fault, it was that there was no fault to be found. The things that were true were the things that should have made, him, made everyone worship him. He was Christ. He was the king. And Lord, we pray that we would embrace him in faith and follow him in every way, including his own example. And Lord, that you yourself would bless us. And if, Lord, if there are any charges that would be true, that we, like Christ, would go about serving you in our vocations. And yes, we as a whole church stirring up the people by teaching the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.